roads who uh, are, are, are serving you um, by, by being community group coordinators and uh, the point people for, for you and us as we move forward and begin implementing this aspect of uh, what we really believe to be a, a really important part to um, our mission, our vision. Um, and so the nuts and bolts of how that gets worked out happens uh, with, with them really at the forefront. And so I'm very grateful for them and their leadership and willingness to uh, step into that role. Um, if you have, have ever had the opportunity to talk with them about um, their community group or their small group, or I, for, I don't even know what they called it, that you guys were a part of a small group, um, that, that was such an important part of their life. And uh, one of the things that, that stood out to me, the, one of the first couple times that Carrie and I were able to talk with them, was that their small group moved them down here. Um, and perhaps worked at cross purposes from what they really desired, uh, but there was there was eight or ten adults that came on a weekend and brought them from Lancaster County to to Mon Alto, and uh, that's that's really a, a picture of what we will look at this morning when we talk about caring and encouraging and praying and holding one another accountable. When we talk about what these groups in their DNA should possess. Uh, they were really a part of one that, that I think did it. And, and so uh, for them as, as ones that have been there, they, they have the opportunity to lead us to get there, which I think is quite exciting. And I'm glad uh, to have them on board in that way. So um, this morning we will get after community groups and get after uh, and looking at what the scriptures say about them. You need to grab your Bibles. You need to get yourself to Acts 2 verse 42. That's where we're going to begin. And uh, as you turn there, let me give you a little disclaimer. Um, This one part of our vision um, is the most culturally contextualized. Uh, So let me define for you what I even mean by that so that we're all on the same page. Um, There's not a verse in the Bible that I can point to that says, uh, and the believers met on a Friday night for two hours and they had dessert and they shared highs and lows and then they went to each other's ball games and their kids and they went to the theater because we don't have a verse that says that. Um, now, we, we will look at this morning how principally we were created for these types of relationships. Uh, but then how that gets fleshed out, how we apply the principles we see in scriptures in, in regards to what we've been created for, and even the model and demonstration of the actions the early church had, uh, as we seek to apply that, that's going to be pretty culturally contextualized. It is going to need to look a certain way in 2015 in Waynesboro that fits us. And, and even in fitting us, it might look different than the church in a different county. It might look different than a church down south because we want to take the principles of Scripture here and we want to work them out in such a way that they fit where we are in this place and time. So that includes Waynesboro, that includes Franklin County, that includes 2015, but we want everything that we do to be well informed and grounded in the principles that the scriptures lay out so that we can we can hopefully aim at accomplishing what was intended and what we were created and built for 
And so where we get to Christ-centered worship, and we were there a few weeks ago, where we could actually point to, and they met on the first day of the week, um, and go, well, hey, that's why we meet on Sundays. There, there's, there's a little bit more guidance and structure there, um, but this one's a little bit more culturally contextualized, uh, because life looks different now than it did 2015 years ago. Um, but the principles of what we are trying to apply, what we believe the Lord's created us for, haven't changed. Uh, but we need to do some creative work in figuring out how all of that bears itself out here. So would you pray with me? Let's ask the Lord to, uh, to come and just give our minds sharpness and clarity as we think. And then uh, we'll hop in to Acts 2.42 together. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for this morning for the opportunity that we have to gather together to, to be um, with your people. <coughs> uh, Lord, we, uh, we ask that you would come and you would teach us this morning that uh, what, we, uh, what we look at, your scriptures that, uh, that we study, um, that ultimately, Lord, it, it'd be you that, that is heard. Um, so God, I pray that you give accuracy to my words, that uh, they would... They, they would be according to what you have said. Um, God, I, I really believe that, that it's in our best interest to draw near and hear what you have spoken, uh, because you have spoken. And, and so, Lord, we pray for us as, as we listen. God, we pray that you would speak loudly, that as we look at your word, um, and as we look at how you've created us, that, that there would just be a, a, a resonating vibe in our souls that connects with how you have built us and hardwired us with this idea of community groups and how we think these can flesh out and really meet um, and, and fit and apply what and how you've designed us to be. So Lord, we, we ask for that, and I pray for that. I pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Um, the four parts of our vision, which is the question if you were to ask us, okay, you have a mission, that's great. It's to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. How do you anticipate doing that? What's the feet-on-the-ground process to actually accomplishing your mission? The four parts as we've been walking through them is Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered serving. This morning we look at Christ-centered community groups. Next week we look at Christ-centered witness. Um, th- those four parts really work in unity within, in themselves. In this way, they can become for us helpful steps to figure out where we might begin, where perhaps we should go next. And so if you're just not sure where to begin at all in this process, well, Christ-centered worship is going to be a really good first spot. And maybe there's a, a renewed commitment to being together with the Lord's people corporately to worship the risen Christ. And, and that as a first step is a good one. That's in, in, in many ways the primary invitation we're extending to those that would come on a Wednesday night and be a part of Grace Family that also wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning. The primary invitation that's extended during the Fall Festival will be a come join us for worship. 
Um, and so from there, you then are able to perhaps consider the next step. Well, all right, I'm, I'm committed to the corporate gathering. I'm trying to work out this lifestyle of worship. Where might I serve? Where might I use the gifts and abilities that the Lord has given me for his people? That could be a great second step question. You work through that. You work with the serving coordinator. We find a place for you to get involved. And those could be a variety of places within um, what we are aiming to do in, in, in just different programs. And then I think a good third step is, well, how can, I, how can I relationally go a little deeper? How can I begin to work out in a smaller setting the things that the Lord has built me for? Because let's just be honest, we're not going to achieve the, the, the community and fellowship the Lord has built us for on a Sunday morning. It's in large part because we're not aiming to do that. We are aiming to have fellowship. We're aiming to have community. But there is a limit on the extent that that can go because of the time constraints that we have, because of even some of the other purposes that we're trying to achieve. And so the, the accomplishment of that is going to, we believe, happen through these Christ-centered community groups. And I think that could be then a great next step for you to consider. And then witness isn't last because it's the least important or because it's necessarily a fourth step, but it's perhaps, if we're honest, the one you may feel least comfortable with. It's the one that you probably have the most trepidation for. The idea of sharing your faith, the idea of, of sharing the gospel with somebody is perhaps the one that scares you and I the most. Hopefully next week we can knock off some of the objections and scary parts and look biblically at what the scriptures say. Um, but we think then for you to live a lifestyle of, of witness to see every aspect of your life actually an opportunity, not just to worship, but to witness as well, um, can be a, a great place to, to be at. And again, these are all what we believe are accomplishing the mission of glorifying God by being disciple-making disciples. And so Acts 42, as the leaders began working through the process and asking ourselves the question, what do disciples look like? How are disciples made? Uh, one of the places that we began was the first five chapters of Acts. It's the birth of the church. It's when the Holy Spirit came and indwelt the 120 that were there in the upper room. The Holy Spirit filled them with a special power for ministry. They go out, they speak in tongues. The whole city is in an uproar. Peter preaches. 3,000 people get saved. And then in verse 42, we have a description of what this church then looked like after that massive revival that one morning. And Luke records for us, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now this word devoted means to continue doing something with intense effort. Perhaps with an implication of resistance. Now, the resistance part really begins to play itself out through the latter half of chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5 of Acts, all the way up and through, really, the stoning of Stephen. And then you kind of just see that track 
all the way through the rest of the book and the New Testament. But there is a devotion, there is an intense effort on the part of these newly converted disciples to do what? Devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They couldn't get enough. With intense effort, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You and I, similarly, can devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching with intense effort because the Lord has recorded and preserved for us what he wanted their teaching to endure. What we have for us is what the Lord wants for us. Is it a copy of everything they taught? Is it a copy of every letter that they wrote? No, but it's what he wants us to have. It's what has been inspired by him with intense effort. We can devote ourselves to his word. With intense effort, we can devote ourselves to fellowship. With this intense effort, we can devote ourselves to the breaking of bread. I think the term breaking of bread means they shared meals together. You have that later on in verses 45, 46, 47, this idea that day to day they were in each other's homes, they were breaking bread. But I also believe they found themselves celebrating the bread and the cup. They found themselves celebrating the elements of the Last Supper that Jesus, however many days, and it was about four or five weeks prior, had said, hey, this is my body, and this is the cup of the new covenant Take and eat, take and drink, and do this in remembrance of me. I think they found themselves, as they gathered, sharing these meals, also celebrating the Lord's Supper. And they devoted themselves with intense effort to praying for each other and one another. These were the the big marks that characterized this early church. There was a devotion with intense effort to these things. And so really one of the questions that then arises out of that as we looked at what the, the actions were of this early church and, and just even the question of, okay, if that's what disciples do, how can we do that led us to working out this definition of Christ-centered community groups. And it's in your bulletin as well, but it's there on the screen that we believe God has created us for relationships with other believers where we live life together. These groups are characterized by caring, encouraging, praying, and holding each other accountable. And so there's two parts to that definition. And like we have on the last two occasions, we're just going to break down that and hopefully show you from the Scriptures where we believe that definition is biblical so that you can begin to put it into practice and work it out. And so the first aspect of that is that we believe God has created us for relationships where we live life together. These groups are not groups for teaching. These groups are groups for relationship. These groups are groups to live life together. Now, there will be a teaching component, and as we get to the end this morning, I'll walk you through a little bit of what that's going to look like in the initial weeks. We're going to come and gather around the Scriptures, but the intent of these groups is not in-depth, informed Bible study. We've got CE classes that can achieve that objective, and they do a really good job at it. 
The intent of these groups is living life together. Now, that certainly includes coming to the Scriptures and allowing ourselves to be at sometimes worked over by the Scriptures, but that's where the caring and the encouraging and the praying and the holding each other accountable parts come in. But these groups are primarily for relationship. It's for the fellowship. It's for the breaking of bread. And so how do we live life together? Well, that's where we believe these things, I believe these things can begin to give us a scope and a picture of what living life together looks like. We pursue oneness. We preach the gospel to each other. And we practically live out the one another's. And so I want to break those down for you. We pursue oneness. Uh, We pursue oneness (coughs) because God is one. And when he created us in his image, he created us in and because and bearing the image of him as a relational God who lives in community. Moses records for us in Genesis 1.26, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That image and likeness bears the DNA of relationship and community in it because God has existed for all time, perfectly in undivided unity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity does not work at cross-purposes for one another. What they do is diverse. There are different roles and functions that each member of the Trinity plays, but they work for the same purpose. And we won't take the time this morning to go to these texts, but Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14, Titus verse three, or chapter 3 verses 4 to 6 are two of the perhaps easiest texts to go and look at as it relates to the Trinity's operation in salvation. See, you and I were, were saved because of the actions of the Trinity. The diversity of each member of the Trinity having a unique role led to the goal of and the point of their work to save souls. One author, and I find this helpful to think through, says this about our salvation, that the saving work of God in Christ is Trinitarian. Christian salvation comes from the Trinity, happens through the Trinity, brings us home to the Trinity. More specifically, the work of the Trinity in the economy of salvation is indivisible. We'll define that. That is, the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct but inseparable. Different functions, same purpose. Each person performs specific roles in the plan of salvation, but never in isolation from one another. God has for all time existed in unending perfect unity with himself. You and I have been created in that image and likeness. We have been created for oneness, not only with him, but with other believers. And so we live life together by pursuing this oneness. And this, in fact, is something that Jesus himself prayed for in the upper room in what is known as his high priestly prayer in John 17. And Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who would believe in me through their word. 
Jesus is not just praying for the 11 that are in the room. He is praying for everyone else that will follow them and believe in him through their words. So just wrap your mind for a minute around the fact that 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for you while he was on earth. He's praying for you. In the upper room before he leaves and goes to the garden and is end up being betrayed and arrested. He prayed for you. And here's what he prayed. That you all may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Now think back to the indivisible, unending unity of the Trinity. This is exactly what Jesus just prayed we would experience. That they would be one as we are one. we got a long ways to go, but here's his prayer for us. That unity and oneness would characterize us I in them and you in me, that the, they may become perfectly one so that the world would know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This oneness is at the heart of living together. Now, oneness and unity is not uniformity, which is one of the beautiful things about how the Lord has created his people. And that all across the world, there are believers of all different skin colors. There are believers of all different languages. There are believers from all different tribes and tongue. And that work's not completed yet because one day there will exist all tribes and tongues and nations before the throne. And there are still a host of them that we have not reached yet. But there is a host, a host of differences within the body of Christ. And unity is not uniformity. This is not all of us getting matching t-shirts and riding tandem bikes. Now, last week we did order matching t-shirts for all of you, but that wasn't the point. Unity is actually being able to be together in the midst of our differences, in the midst of what might distinguish us, which sometimes those differences might be vast. And actually working out oneness as the Father was prayed to by the Son. See, unity is is in the midst of diversity. Unity is not uniformity. We live life together by pursuing oneness. It will take a variety of forms. It will look a variety of ways. But we pursue oneness. We pursue unity together. Secondly, we preach the gospel to each other. I don't want you to get weird on this because I don't want anybody to get in their minds that you've got to bring your group into this room and one of you has to stand four inches taller than the rest of you so that the gospel can be preached to everybody. That, that's not the idea. There are formal ways that the gospel is preached. That we do that when we gather on Sunday mornings. There are very informal ways that the gospel is preached throughout the week. And it's the informal ways that I think your group will find themselves identifying around and quote-unquote preaching the gospel to themselves. And that word preach in the scriptures is actually just the word herald. 
And if you think about what a herald did and what, a, what the job of a herald was, he just said what the king told him to say. That's what a herald did. And the word preach in the scriptures is actually where you get the word herald from. And a herald was just somebody who said, Hear ye, hear ye, thus saith the king. I think one of the last instances we saw that in our culture, and it wasn't even our culture, but we watched with bated eyes for it, was the birth of Will and Kate's first child. And the guy walked out in the funny little costume that we don't understand because we're American and they're British. And he spoke and he unrolled the scroll. And it, it, he was a short little guy. And so the scroll was about as big as he was. And, and he said it. And he said it with conviction. He preached. He heralded. The king had given him news to share, and he went and shared it. Well, that's the idea of you and I preaching the gospel to each other. The king has given us news to share. And the gospel is not just for unbelievers. It's also for believers, which is one of the characteristics that we said actually answers the question, what does it mean to be Christ-centered? It's actually to believe that the gospel is not just for unbelievers, but also for believers. And the the common, consistent observation you can make in the New Testament is that when there are letters written to churches, which is the majority of the New Testament, they are written with a clear articulation of the gospel. You take Romans, you take Ephesians, you take Colossians, you take Philippians. Um, There are divisions in the book where the first several chapters are all about a re-articulating of the gospel. And the second set of chapters is about how you faithfully apply what has just been given to you. And so Paul writes to the church in Rome and says, I'm excited to come and preach the gospel to you. But they were believers. And he writes to the church in Corinth and he says, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you. Well, preaching the gospel to ourselves is an incredibly important thing because if we're honest with each other, the words to the hymn, Come Thou Fount, are actually pretty appropriate for us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And seeing when we gather to care and encourage and pray and hold one another accountable, we we gather with an opportunity to remind each other of the gospel that we stand in. To remind each other of what the Lord has called us to. To remind each other, us other, of the love which with He has lavished on us. When we gather, we have an opportunity to preach the gospel to each other, which is incredibly, incredibly powerful. When we gather and there are, a, a, there are group members perhaps despairing and, and not sure what to do with this situation or that situation or perhaps it's, it's family or work or perhaps just life. They may be in what, what gets, gets commonly referred to as dark night of the soul. You gather with the opportunity to reaffirm to them that you know what, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's there and his rod and his staff are comforts. Even though you are going through what may feel like the most devastating days, God has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten His promises to you. 
It's part of what this means to preach the gospel to each other. Part of preaching the gospel to each other is actually calling each other to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel, which is a phrase found throughout the New Testament letters. Walk worthy of the gospel. Peter, in his second epistle to a group of churches that had been scattered because of persecution, writes in verse 3 that God has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. See, he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And then he gets to verse 5 and he goes, so add to your faith, knowledge, and add to your knowledge, virtue. And add to your virtue, godliness. And add to that steadfastness. And add to that brotherly love. See, there's this relationship as in the gospel. And if we just use some theological words to describe it, there's a relationship between our justification and our sanctification. And this, these groups aim at, at, at the sanctification aspect where we're reminding each other of, of the gospel that we have been saved by and how that is the power for us to live by faith. And so as Peter writes in verses 3 and 4 in regards to their justification, that you have been saved by the great promises of God, that He has given you all things pertaining to life and godliness, and then he moves in verse 5 to say, for this reason, add to your faith. For this reason, there's some things in regards to sanctification. See, preaching the gospel to ourselves keeps this in front of us, and it's something we need. Because we're not just prone to wander, we're also prone to think that God might love us more if we obey a little more. Or God perhaps was a little bit angry with us this morning because we didn't do our devotions. And neither one of those statements are true. God has lavished His love for us in Christ Jesus. I try to do this with my kids whenever we have those moments where discipline is needed. We sit them down and, and, and in those moments after we're, we're, we're having this conversation about their actions, it, I, I try to bring back up to them, hey, hey sweetie, uh, daddy doesn't love you any more, or any less I should say, um, because you disobeyed. And if you had obeyed, daddy wouldn't love you any more. And I try to preach the gospel to my kids when they come home with, with stars on their homework and, and when they get commended by their teachers. Hey, sweetie, I just want you to know, I don't love you more because your teacher said you did a great job today at school. I'm excited you did a great job, but I don't want you to believe that my love for you is conditional on your behavior. It's not. And I'm crazy excited that she recognized that you are a a, a good student, and you're treating others with kindness. That's awesome. But my love for you has not grown because those things happened. That's preaching the gospel to each other. That's functionally living out these aspects of where we are prone to wander. The, the, the Lord uses each other, uses us in each other's lives in powerful ways. The, the author of Proverbs, Solomon, would say this, iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. Thirdly, what does it mean to live life together? We practically live out the one another's. There are 59 one another's in the Scriptures. I believe up to four of them include kissing, and you're going to have to work that out on your own. Perhaps that's just better 
you know, worked out with a spouse um, and not in your community group, but there are significant one another's that need to be worked out. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Love one another. Rejoice with one another. Weep with one another. I mean, the, the, the range is there. And now let's just, let's just chat and be real upfront. If you're to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you, it means that you've been sinned against. You've got nothing to forgive if there's no offense that's been given. So if you're going to live this out, in some ways you, you live expecting the offense to come because we are imperfect people. But you're also not surprised when it comes. And it's an opportunity to, to work out the commands to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. That idea is, is built on the fact that we're, we're going to offend each other. These groups are going to be messy. If you're going to bear with one another, there's going to perhaps be that guy or that gal in your group that, that you just maybe want to shake. Listen. Do it differently. But what does bearing with one another look like? It means that you consistently call them to a higher standard. You consistently give them grace and mercy because hasn't the Lord consistently given us grace and mercy? See, these groups are opportunities for us to take what the Lord has done for and in us and to do it for and in other people's lives. See, we practically live out the one another's, and this will be messy. If you want a perfect group, just don't join one. You'll mess it up. If you want a group that perhaps is real and that wants to aim at living out what the Scriptures have called us to do, we think we've, we've got a shot at creating some of those. And so to live life together is to pursue oneness. It's to preach the gospel to each other, and it's to practically live out the one another's. Now, we think those then will be characterized by the following four things, and it's the second sentence, caring, encouraging, praying, and holding each other accountable. And so let's just look briefly at those four. What does it look like? What does it mean to care for one another? Um, It means that you do what good friends do. Caring for one another is not just a paid pastor responsibility. It is something the Lord has given all of us as his body to bear the weight and responsibility of. And this looks real practically, such as somebody in your group has a baby, or they go into the hospital, or maybe it's a child goes into the hospital. You know what? Your group's now arranging meals. Somebody in your group has said, you know what? I'm going to give them two weeks of meals. And I might call people outside of our group. I'm going to make an extra big casserole myself. We'll get everybody to do that as well. But we're going to take that on. And they're not going to have to think about what they eat or what they prepare for two weeks, maybe longer if needed, because we're going to care for them. Say a dad goes down and he breaks his leg or something. You know what? Somebody in your group's mowing his yard, shoveling his snow making sure his cars are brushed off in the morning. Those are functional and practical ways to care for one another. 
And that's a responsibility the Lord has given and placed on all of us to bear. So we have that responsibility, certainly as the big group, but these groups, these community groups, are characterized by that as well. And not only do we care for one another, we encourage one another. And that's, that's part of the reason we gather as a big group. Just think back two weeks ago. That was the third thing that we're trying to accomplish when we gather here. But encouragement looks a lot different on a small level than it does on a, a large level. And I shared with you the story of a, a friend of mine in Indiana who um, was, was greatly encouraged by coming weekly and being strengthened and served by the body of Christ in the midst of some tough personal decisions to follow the Lord. Well, that, that man was also in my small group. And I had the opportunity to talk with him a whole lot more in depth and a whole lot more in detail about what was going on. I had the opportunity in those moments to pull aside with him and to pray specifically for him in ways that I couldn't or others couldn't on a Sunday morning. And so not, we, we don't just accomplish encouragement on a Sunday morning when we gather. We also accomplish it then in these groups where they, Lord willing, are places to share a little bit more about what is going on. And there's perhaps a few more specific ways that encouragement can be given. And the Lord has gifted us to do this. He's created us to do this. And one of the things that I'm, I'm finding myself is that things that I think are really simple, other people are saying, that really meant a lot. And I stand back and I go, Really? That was nothing, and, and it just happened this past week where a, a buddy of mine had some stuff come up and happen, some unexpected stuff. He said, hey, will you pray with me or pray for me? So I just called him. We prayed there on the phone. I mean, it, was, it wasn't a fancy prayer. It was, like, I didn't use a lot of big words. I mean, it was just your average, let's go before the Lord together. And I get a text back from him going, I, I was really moved by that. And then I was kind of moved by his movement and, and like because I wasn't planning on moving anybody. And it was like, wow, like, Lord, you're like, I, I hadn't anticipated that response. And, 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 and so I think some of, the, some of the time we can be surprised by how we, we seek to encourage one another and even things that to us may feel like they're just really small and insignificant. Used of the Lord can actually make some profound impacts in people's lives and we have the opportunity to pray for one another. You have the opportunity to pray specifically for one another. You have the opportunity to, to kind of know what's going on in a different way and to really hold those people up before the Lord. And then lastly, holding each other accountable. And I want to kind of debunk an idea of accountability that you might have in your mind. Um, there was a movement, however many years ago, that, that really sought to uh, arrange accountability in this form, you would, you would get one, or you'd get two to maybe four, five guys together, five girls together. They would, quote-unquote, hold each other accountable, and they would meet each week, and they would have a list of, of uh, uh, pre-ranged questions that they would go through. And they, so did you do this this week? Did you do that this week? Did you, did you read this week? Did you snap at your wife? Okay, now have you lied to me in any of those things? And that usually was the last question uh, in all of those meetings, while that model of accountability is not sinful, I also don't think it's helpful. Because it creates this atmosphere in 
the relationships, if you can even call them that at that point, that in some ways becomes a bit adversarial. Where what if the answer to the question, have you lied to me, is actually, well, yes, I have. Well, now what are you doing? Let me, let me give you a, a story to perhaps think through accountability in, and then we'll make some, some applications for it. All right, you have a friend. Hopefully everybody has at least one. And you and this friend have a shared hobby. You pick the friend, you pick the hobby. It could be stamp collecting, it could be classic cars, it could be knitting, it could be whatever you want. It's your friend, it's your hobby. If you don't have any friends or hobbies, just make them up. Go with me, okay? You and your friend, on a Monday, on a Sunday, get together. You agree that next Saturday, you are going to get together and you're going to do what your hobby is. Okay, so you're going to go fishing, or you're going to go take photography, or whatever it might be. You're going to check fantasy football stats, or just whatever it looks like. Okay, but throughout the week, uh, you and your friend had agreed that there was a certain level of prep that you needed to do, and there was a certain level of prep that they needed to do to get ready for Saturday's big day. And so throughout the week, you call your friend, hey, how's it going? Did you, did you get those things done? And now your friend says, no, I haven't. I've been buried at work. The kids got sick. I, I have not had time to prep. How will you, as a friend, respond? You come down with the hammer? Well, you said, and hopefully you don't, because that would be the wrong way to answer this question. Now, probably as a friend, you go, well, what can I do to help you? What can I do to lighten the load that you might be able to do that? What might I be able to just take on my shoulders that you had said you would do so that we can still on Saturday get together and agree? See, that, that's actually holding one another accountable. But it's done in the context of a relationship that is not sitting across some diner booth with somebody asking them four or five canned questions ending with, have you lied to me? See, if these groups get together and they actually function the way that we hope they will, there's, there's going to be an element of, you know what, um, I've been really struggling with um, how to love my kids in the midst of whatever's going on. Or, you know, I, I, I'm just really not sure where to, what to do with this situation at work. Or perhaps you're even having conversations and discussing, you know, I, I, I really want to have this conversation with a coworker, And I know they're really, really struggling. And I think I could offer to pray for them and that would be an encouragement to them. And so what do you as a friend in these groups do? Well, you can call that brother or sister up the next day. Hey, uh, how'd that go? Did you have the conversation? No, I, I, I didn't. You know, I... I Fear got the best of me. It just didn't happen. Okay. Well, hey, can I, can I pray for you that, that the Lord might give you boldness to go and do that? See, there, there's holding one another accountable in a way that's, I think, a whole lot more biblical and a whole lot more helpful. Because that's just kind of what friends do, folks. If friends are involved in each other's lives to that point, that's just what they do. You're calling each other. You're texting each other. You're following up with each other. You're checking in. What's going on? How can I help? Where can I pray? Where, if you are low, can I encourage? It's just what friends do. And so we think these groups will be characterized by this. So we believe that God has created all of us to be in relationship with other believers. 
and that these groups are characterized by caring, encouraging, praying, and holding each other accountable. Now, in your bulletin this morning, there was a half-sheet information form there. And that is for you if you are interested in being a part of these community groups to give some information to Derek and Emily um, as we figure out what these are going to look like. Now, as I walk you through what they're going to look like, everything that I have just said will probably not be accomplished in the first run. So I just gave you a picture of our dreams, what we're aiming for to launch with doesn't even get close because we want to, over the next 10 weeks, beginning in the beginning of October, have groups that meet together for five times. That's the extent of the commitment level. This is not a long-term commitment. You are not signing a 48-month lease. You are uh, agreeing to meet five times. If you feel at the end of those five times like you just got sent to the loony farm, you can get out. The gates are wide open. But we want you to be able to commit for five times. And those groups will get together for a couple hours each time. Every other week. And you can see there, there's an option for Friday or Saturday or Sunday. um, Because we're going to just try to have the groups, um, you know, if there's a a group of people that say, Friday would work best. Well then, probably is going to be a good thing to get those people together. We are going to have an element of teaching. We're going to have a a series that we're going to go through. It's called Basic. It's by Francis Chan. And what that will include is a 15-minute video with Francis speaking um, very creatively. And then it will have some discussion questions for your group to process. And we're going to look at four different parts that uh, the Bible teaches are basic to following the Lord. Fearing God, following Jesus, fellowship, and teaching. Those four things are in large part what we've been walking over the last few weeks together with ourselves. Now, in the beginning of December, when these groups end, we want you to stand back and we want you to evaluate and we want you to consider, all right, am I, am I willing to take a next step? Because then in January, we envision having both types of groups, one group or one type of group that's going to kind of begin to figure out how to work out this vision together and, and to be more committed to one another. And then, and then another type of group that perhaps is, is people newer to the church or perhaps you, that you're just not ready to go there yet. And, and so maybe the five weeks was a good way for you to kind of get a taste of what it was. Maybe you want another five to really see before you can get in. And that's, that's okay. Um, but come January, we really envision having two types of groups, because we think some of you are there. Some of you are ready to have what I just walked through. Some of you might be craving that, and others of you are scared to death of that idea. And so maybe we can go for five weeks with no commitment beyond that to give you a look at what this may actually mean. There could be a lot of ideas of what it could look like that perhaps just aren't true. And if you give it a shot, you might find out how those groups do work themselves out. And so what I'd like for you to do, and we'll just make this very easy on all of you, um, if you're going to fill out the information sheet, just leave it where you are. Derek, Emily, or myself will come by. We'll pick them up. You don't have to go and find one of us. You just leave it there. We won't even say it's littering because you've been given permission to do it. Just leave it there. We'll pick it up. 
and then that will give us the information we need to begin organizing and communicating these things. But we're looking to have these short-term groups ready to go by the beginning of October, 10 weeks period of time, every other week, that'll take us to about the first week of December. We'll shut them down for the craziness and awesomeness of celebrating Christmas, and then come the first of the year, we're going to aim to launch and ramp those back up. But we believe this is one of the things that God has created us for, this oneness, this opportunity to preach the gospel to one another and to functionally live out the one another's. And so the scriptures tell us to love one another and that that love will be a characteristic of us and that love will be a way that we are known to the world. And so even as we close this morning, I would invite you to stand with the band as we close in that way. They will know we are Christians by our love. Would you stand and join us?